Welcome to Masters of Color, brought to you by Lopost.com and Ravengrade.com. I'm your host, Cullen Kelly, and my guest today is Eric White. As David Fincher's colorist of choice for the last several years, Eric has an impressive list of credits that includes Mank, Mindhunter, and House of Cards. His work on these projects extends far beyond the traditional tasks of color grading, incorporating complex look modeling and incredibly detailed adjustments on virtually every frame. The techniques and the insights that he shared with me during our conversation are truly next level. This episode is sponsored by Pixelview.io, an affordable streaming solution for editors and colorists. It's an all-in-one solution that just works. Simply plug in the encoder and start streaming. Now with built-in video chat, it enables easy collaboration with remote clients, allowing you to review and discuss changes in real time while everyone is watching the same high quality image. You can use promo code MASTER to get a 15% discount on hardware encoder at pixelview.io. And now let's get into my conversation with Eric White. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great, great. I just had a long weekend, so I'm, I'm all jazzed up and, and uh, full of um, good energy. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Like I, I, I sometimes catch myself like getting grumpy about like having too much on my plate or whatever, but you know, like about two days down and then uh, just like you said, like by the time I come back today, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited. I've got all this stuff I want to do. Yeah. yeah um, you wake up thinking about the things you're going to do today. It's yeah. Which is the, 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 the ideal, obviously we have, we have cool jobs. Um, well, thanks for, uh, joining me for this color chat, man. I have, uh, probably, uh, about three days worth of questions that I could, uh, uh, drill you with, but I'm going to try to get as much into the next hour or so as possible. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'll try to answer real fast. Yeah. Super fast. (laughs) Um, so here's the one I want to start with. This is actually, I was thinking about this, uh, over the weekend. So have you, you know, those memes where it's like, you know, like what my parents think I do, what society thinks I do, what oh, right. I really do. Have you seen those? Um, no, I haven't, but I've had that sort of conundrum. Yes. Explaining what I do. Yes. I mean, I think it's like, it's, it, they're popular for colorists in general because it's such a, like, nobody understands what the hell we do. Right. Um, but I think it's especially interesting in your case, because if I think about like, if I rewind and I go to like young Cullen, like just getting started as a colorist and just starting to think about charting a career in color. And I talk to him about the job of like, Hey, someone's job, there's some colorist out there who's one day going to have the job of being essentially like the personal colorist to one of the greatest directors in the history of cinema, one of the greatest (laughs) working directors for sure. So there's like, for most of us who know of you and know that you somewhat play that role for David Fincher, I think a lot of us have like a lot of sort of like grand visions of like, wow, what, what must that be? Like our imaginations run away with us of like, what is, what is Eric's life as David Fincher's colorist look like? But a- as those memes go, I feel like there's probably a version of that of like what other colorists think you do, like what people outside of our industry think you do, and then like what you actually do. So this is all like a very long winded way of asking like, what is it actually like to be the go-to colorist for such a incredible and uh, like exacting director? I get to see his process and his work from conception to the very last frame, you know, um, because sometimes I'm there in a sort of pre-production meeting and um, I'm definitely there all the way to the end. 
Um, it's, you know, right now, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing dailies come in from the current shoot. And whenever there's a question, uh, is that overexposed? Or, you know, they, uh, I, I'll request the R, R3Ds. I'll do a little grade here and there um, to reassure both Eric and David that they're, they're getting exactly what they need. And, um, and um, they can continue. Uh, uh, shooting. <laughs> no, yeah. um, one thing I do that people maybe aren't aware of yet is that um, I'm also, when I'm not uh, working on a current project, I'm also doing remasters for him. So, oh. yeah, so I, I recently got um, the social network, which I simply um, had to regrade for, well, adapt for HDR. Um, so, th in that case, it was just taking an, an existing color master and repurposing it for HDR and then submitting it to David for all kinds of notes that are simply David having evolved for the last 10 years and in what the, his current concerns and his color, uh, you know, um, ameliorations, how would you call it? His, his color improvements on what he did 10 years ago with yeah. Ian Verbeck um, at Light Iron. Um, um, who, Ian, if you're watching, hello, um, uh, great. You know, it's always, it's always weird to take somebody else's work, but you don't have to, you don't see it that way. You just take, you know, the, the project, you know, at hand and you, 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 you perform the tasks that are asked of you, you know, as best you can. And hopefully, and all you're looking for is a green light from David saying, I like that. I like that. And, uh, you know, not some comment that you have to wrangle, <laughs> you know, and, um, and whatnot. Oh, that's cool. I mean, like th that, the way you're describing that remastering process. And also when I'm like thinking about what your work must generally be when you're doing your grades is like, I, I I've seen enough like little snippets of you. Like there was a great, uh, video I think that you did with Baselight where you kind of, you were like grading some shots for Mindhunter, like kind of shot by shot for a little bit. And I'm looking at that stuff and I'm going, man, like, all colorists, uh, all, all color grading is about fine detail, but man, are you getting granular and not just because that's like your uh, like uh, level of detail that you like to get into, but clearly that's like the level of precision that notes are coming in at in terms of like, like, like knocking one little corner down or bringing one little piece up. So like back to that, I, I think like maybe what I was uh, wondering about in terms of like what it's actually like to work with David Fincher is it just all like chasing little details like that? How much of it is focused on the big picture? Like what is the feel of this job compared to working for someone else? Well, it can feel like you're chasing details and you're, you're chasing a lot of concerns that he has that sometimes are quite brutal. You know, he's really makes you focus on something that you think, man, um, I don't, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole of having to, you know, look at, you know, uh, three scenes, you know, one little shadow in the corner there, it needs to be consistent throughout those three scenes or, you know, uh, the color of a door jam or something like that. Um, but, you know, the, the, that's the hard part of grading. And if you were to talk to yourself, you know, or to any other colorists, uh, prospective colors, somebody who's looking to go into color saying, oh, I love color. Well, you know, the appeal of color is the absolute fascination with cinematography, with photography, with uh, light and color. And it's, it's, abs it's, it's very sexy, um, uh, you know, for a certain type of person. Um, um, but the reality is, is that uh, 
etalonage or, gr or grading. In French, it means uh, to balance and to make sure everything is consistent. Um, and um, that's, I would say it's 90% of what I do, you know. Um, yes, um, I mean, I take things and when I first get a hold of it, and I'm always working behind the scenes to anticipate what David wants. You know, I, you know, my, my general, you know, I, I generally know that he likes detail in all area shadows, you know, in all areas of the image and from the highlights down to, you know, sometimes it's just in a part of the face or whatnot, but um, he, he doesn't shoot as rock and roll as say somebody like I'm, I'm also re re remastering panic room right now. Um, and that was shot by uh, mostly by Darius Kanji, uh, I believe, in a, in, a, in a style that I don't think he would he would go for today because it, it, it there's much more of a of a of a, you know so the blacks are crushed in in some of the shots. Um, it's much more rock and roll, yeah. you know. And David likes to do that in post now. He likes to he likes to keep it all together, all together, and really fine tune it, you know, up until the last minute. So all the parts have to be interlocking and adjustable for him so to answer your question it's really complex working for david fincher because you have to look at he forces you to look into the details he really puts your nose in certain things and at the same time you know that you you need to have an eye on the bigger picture um and to kind of steer the big ship you know at the same time that's a grand word for what a colorist does uh but um it's all in there, you know, it's yeah. all everything, all of the above, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that leads me perfectly to like the other side of the coin that I wanted to ask you about. So it's like on one hand, we're starting, I think, to get our, our, our more accurate profile, like, okay, what is it actually like to be Eric doing grades for David Fincher? Mm -hmm. So we talked about like, well, there's a hell of a lot of detail and that just comes with the territory. But as you just alluded to, there's also that onus to keep an eye on the big picture and steer the, the ship. Uh, overall. So that is where my next set of questions comes in of like, you've, you've done just off the top of my head, a couple of films and shows that are really, they have a really unique thumbprint at kind of like the macro, like global look level, like Mank is the maybe easiest example there. Like that's an incredibly complex, like modeled system that you've built out that all of those little tiny localized decisions are feeding into. So like, now I guess I'm curious to hear about like, what role does that portion play, like that macro level, like look design or like modeling uh, play in your process? Well, I mean, he had some global, uh, you know, some global instructions right from the start. I mean, you know, he shot an 8K, monoc uh, 8K monochrome sensor uh, with like a uh, Summilux lenses, which are some of the sharpest lenses available. And the whole task from that point on was to degrade the image you know to degrade this back into 1942 or whatever in it before uh you know the making of citizen kane so that all happened in in di you know in the grade um in the it with defocusing and uh, you know uh, adding uh, after they've stabilized the imaging the image uh, adding uh, gate weave and whatnot and uh, grain uh, you know uh, keyframe grains you know like uh, everything in in mank was such a I mean, if you look at the the mountain range of what the Mank timeline is in Baselight, um, it's it's a lot of interlocking parts, you know. And there's there's a lot of composites with the, the titles coming in at the same time, the grain fading out or going crazy because it's supposed to be an optical fade. And um, there's a lot going on there. I'll say that globally on Mank, I I um you know my approach was 
Ansel Adams, you know, uh, maybe at the beginning. Uh, but David wanted crushed, bloomed blacks, you know, not quite crushed, but bloomed. You know, he wanted this, this, um, this uh, procedural effect um, that I did with, uh, you know, offsetting, uh, you know, the black, you know, uh, shadows of blurred and offset against each other to just get that fine blur area around uh, a contrast zone. Um, yeah. um, but a lot of mank was dodging and burning. So that those are terms that come from photog still photography, which is where I came from, uh, which is just, you know, darkening and, 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 and lightening areas of the image, tracking all those areas if, if they're in movement. And, um, and um, especially in Mank, there was a lot of smoke uh, sort of balancing. They use a lot of smoke machines. And so it's always, you know, trying to make sure that the, the background is more hazy than the foreground. You know, the foreground should be sharper. And it's just really making sure that the, the focus, I mean, David has said this himself, that all he's doing in post, and he loves post, by the way, um, is directing the viewer's eye you know mm -hmm. and and um and a lot of my first pass at mank was simply dealing with all that smoke and in in having the right volume the right depth in 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 the in the shot um without resorting to um rotoscope uh, you know roto uh, or and and i only asked for roto actually on one maximum two shots in the whole movie it, i did ask for roto of course in a lot of these visual effects uh shots that were, that were part of the day for night scenes yeah. um i asked for rosca all they, all they could give me in terms of alpha channels yeah. yeah wow i mean that's so many cool things you just mentioned i mean like just to pick one out of the hat keyframed grain Mm. I, I must hear more about this madness. <laughs> well, it's just a, it, it was just a necessity. We, we tried live grain. We were interested in live grain at first because that's, you know, sampled from actual film stocks. I, I loved live grain personally. I wanted to go for it, but David didn't because he wanted to be able to change the size of the grain during, you know, the fade outs. So what we're called, what we call, optical fades which were in the past it was two pieces of film uh you know uh being overlaid over each other for the for the for the fade to black or for titles and during that optical fade um the the gamma needs to go sort of wild crazy uh you know the highlights need to bloom and kind of burst out and the grain needs to increase dramatically and so that's why we had to keyframe that um and other than that we had you know certain stock values of grain per you know uh the the you know per scene you know that we would have less or more grain depending on if it was nighttime and you know in the day for night stuff we actually added a, bu a bunch of grain because it was shot uh you know two stops over practically so that i would then you know darken it um and so that was a very clean uh final result you know the day for night looked very clean um which was intentional that was what eric messerschmidt wanted to do yeah well, I mean, l l that that takes me right into that day for night stuff, which we got to talk about. I mean, I, I have to tell you, when I watched, I, I like everybody, eagerly watched uh, Mank like as soon as it was available. And when that scene came on, that was the first time in a while as a professional, I'm looking at that going like, what the hell are they doing here? Like, I don't know quite like, I mean, it looks like from a viewer experience, like I, I loved how it looked, but like in terms of trying to dissect it as a, a working professional, it was like, I don't know how this look is being achieved. What combination of camera and grading 
was going on. And you've talked about this a bit before, but I'd love you to take us just through a victory lap of like, how was that day for night look achieved so beautifully for bank? Well, we, we, Eric and I did, uh, you know, when we did the show lets, he came by with some red cameras with the monochrome and we had also tested the Komodo, I think. Uh, but we were all really happy to just, he was, you know, he chose the monochrome, David chose one of the monochrome and that was such a great choice because it really lent an aura of cinematic, uh, you know, purity to what we were, were about to embark on. Um, uh, so I did a day for night LUT, you know, uh, because Eric was, this was Eric's idea to shoot day and or Eric and David somehow together. But, um, and to shoot it in a way that they had a lot of bounce uh, so that there were, there were not a lot of shadows on people's faces and whatnot. And then to shoot it uh, in very bright sunlight. And so that's what it looked like. If you just, you know, toggled on and off all the layers, you get blasted with uh, just pure day, you know? And then, so my job was to come up with a curve, um, which, you know, looked very dark in the beginning and then kind of went up at the end, you know, just, bringing, you know, just a weird, you know, look like a swan, maybe my curve, you know, um, yeah. just kind of up, then you know, back down and then, uh, you know, up at the end. Um, and then some gamma, you know, obviously, you know, you keep all, all, all those long walk and talk shots are all keyframes of, you know, uh, dynamic gamma, you know, um, and everything, there's millions of trackers and, uh, I mean, you name it, uh, you know, the chef, you know, David, the, 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 every single, you know, the highlights of the awnings in the background of this, you know, beautiful labyrinth of garden, every single thing needs to be dosed out. Um, he might, you know, if it's really pronounced what he's looking for, he might kick it back to the, the effects and have them paint in little things if it's, if the tracking is too complex. But I'll tell you, there's m multiple trackers all over that stuff, um, wow. you know looking for you know all the right dosage and the penumbra you know you need to be it's uh yeah i i i get shivers like i don't know was it shivers or uh it's hard to, it's hard to watch because when i watch those it's i'm looking for errors my own errors you know yes. <laughs> and it's quite it's quite nerve-wracking you know when you get close to uh you know delivery yeah especially because they they stabilize so much and sometimes they hand me a, a stab back to where everything has changed. So my trackers all need to be updated. Uh, it gets pretty down to the wire sometimes. I can imagine that how, <laughs> however much time is afforded to you to do your thing, you you need every minute and then a few more that you usually don't get. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'm on the I'm on the part of the film, part of the crew. You know, I'm, I'm hired by the movie, you know. Um, David doesn't pay me directly. So I... I, I'm on these things for way longer than any other normal grader would be on a project, you know? Um, and I'm sure there's a few others out there, but this is one way of working, you know? Um, um, not everybody, you know, it, it's because David wanted to, you know, he, 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 he's the kind of guy who just likes to have the, the ability to change his mind at any point, you know, and to, or to keep adapting and you have to build it in a certain way that it remains adaptable until the end, you know? Yeah. You obviously have what sounds to me like, uh, like we talked about earlier, maybe not at all the job we might all think that you have, but a very cool job, uh, that, uh, you're in a great spot to have, but of course, David's lucky to have you as well and, and willing to go through all of that, like, 
attention to detail in in good spirits and understanding that it's going to make a meaningful material contribution to the end experience of the film. That's there's a lot of colorists out there that or even good colorists who just wouldn't be up to that level of precision, I think. Yeah, I mean, it takes a certain masochistic, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, stamina. I, everybody here, in, in any case, the people that work for David direct, uh, directly are all people that are able, willing and able to wear multiple hats and to, you know, dig under the hood and, you know, cr create the tools somehow that, that we need to satisfy, you know, the what's being asked of us, you know? Yeah, I love it, man. That, that, that's, that, that's a special group of people. Um, I, I have a, a random question to ask you about that uh, popped into my head as you were speaking just now. There's, I, I hear uh, when I've listened to you talk about uh, your work with David in the past, and uh, when I listen to David talk about color as well, there's a word that gets used that has kind of become like a dirty word uh, in color grading circles now, gamma. And I'm just curious, like what, what, when you tell me you're dropping the gamma, are you literally, do you, are you going for like a, a power function wheel and increasing or lowering it? What does that word mean to you? What role does the tool play in uh, your workflow? Well, gamma is, it, you know, it is, it's one of those words like brightness or saturation that you can mean different things to different people. It yeah. is a power function. And so it doesn't affect the highlights the same way it affects the midtones. Um, uh, so uh, actually all I'm saying is really when I, when I say that it is, I'm literally using the gamma knob in, uh, in the base grade of, uh, of, of base light, you know, I'm, I'm just dropping the midtones. I think that's how I refer to it. I mean, you know, nuke, for example, breaks down the highs, mids and lows in the shadows, mids and lows. So you have three, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. I personally am not a stickler for, um, I, I love, I, I love standards obviously because it enables what we do. I, I love to be precise about things, but at the end of the day, me personally, David might disagree, but me personally, I think the final result is all that matters and it doesn't matter how you get there and the rest is communication. And that's what you should do. You should find out what that director means by gamma. You know, sometimes you do have to ask the question, you know, you know what I, I had a problem at first because david was sometimes saying um he, he in his notes he would just say you know he would say match to this or match to that or then sometimes he would just say match and i was like but wait that's the the match or are you saying match that to something you previously you know communication yeah. it's really hard uh it, you have to be precise though so you have to be willing to ask the question uh, yeah like um, you just did <laughs> yeah no i mean it's 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 a funny one and it, it's interesting to hear I guess, uh, the, I mean, those are great uh, insights in general about like the slippery nature of, you know, like the, the I, I often like to uh, sort of adopt that, that aphorism that talking about music is like dancing about architecture, like very much the same thing with color, like talking about this stuff is not easy. Um, yeah. But the gamma thing is really interesting to me in particular, just because like, it's so weird, like the other, like the vogue and the trend of our craft and the terms that are cool and the tools that are cool and how that changes over time. But I'm interested specifically in the gamma one because it's become such a, it's like maybe I'm just running in weird circles or something, but it's become almost taboo in the era of like scene referred color managed workflows when everyone's talking about offsets and, you know, like more right. operations. 
And yet you're one of many colorists I know who do make great use of a wheel that does something uh, equally as useful as any other wheel might uh, to, as you said, achieve the ends you have in mind. Uh, mm -hmm. Ultimately, like however you get there is, I would agree with you, like the, the results are, are the only thing anyone's going to see, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. Interesting. Um, well, cool. I mean, so that that's so much interesting stuff about, oh, and I, I guess my other question for you about Mank is you, uh, on the other long list of like complex, like uh, behaviors that you implemented with that raw, sharp uh, camera negative for Mank, like you also, uh, you, you talked about a bunch of stuff like the black blooming and, uh, you know, like controlling texture and sharpness and softness. And it sounds to me like that's, uh, uh, except in like specific cases, that's all kind of under your DI umbrella, right? That's not, that the, for the most part, that's not being shipped off to VFX, right? That's all DI. VFX provided the cigarette marks, you know, the, 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 the old school, uh, you know, change yeah. real, real changeover change. marks. Yeah. They provided some dirt, you know, during some of the optical uh, fades, um, which were, by the way, composited in DI, but they provided those elements. But all the rest, um, all the defocusing and the, the bloom, the, even the blooms sometimes were keyframed. Um, all of that is done in DI. I mean, as far as I can remember, Christopher Dulgaris, correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, but um, that Christopher is like a David Starr um, visual effects artist that also works in-house. Oh, cool. um, um, yeah, no, it was all degrading in, in DI. Um, as far as I yeah. remember, yeah. And is that stuff you were able to achieve within Baselight or did you have to get fancy with any of those things? No, it was all done in Baselight. Um, uh, the add the, the grain was the Baselight procedural grain tool, um, just monochromed out. Um, and um, the camera shake was what we used for um, the gate weave, you know, David wanted to add gate weave, which yeah. by the way, we removed uh, because uh, to do uh, the film out, because there is a film out version that's on monochrome stock. Um, there's like, I think two copies of it at this point. Um, but there is a monochrome version of the film uh, that's on, uh, on film, yeah. digital film on actual film. And uh, we removed the, the, the faux, uh, the faux gate, weave. Uh, gate weave. Yeah. Uh, I feel like crazy. Every single like mention of every topic brings up 20 more questions I want to ask you, but I have to, for the film out, I have to ask what, what was that process? How did you tee up for the printout? What, what did you, what did you, I mean, what were you grading in to begin with? Are you grading in some kind of log scene space for your uh, main grading uh, environment? Mm -hmm. The main grade is, uh, was done in um, red log, uh, uh, you know, R3G10, uh, red, white gamut. Got it. Um, there is no monochrome, you know, working color space. Primary, Otherwise, we've yeah. gone for that. You know, why not? Um, um, but it's done, you know, with the red um, RRT version 1.13. Um, and, and it was graded for an HDR, uh, you know, uh, master, um, P3, P65. Um, that was the Netflix version. So then I did a um, theatrical version. Uh, I took it to Light Iron because we do have a, uh, a suite here, um, uh, you know, a digital Barco sitting behind me back there, but uh, it's not quite, um, you know, I don't think it quite has the blacks that we, we were looking for. So then we took it to Light Iron. I did it there, uh, taking basically the log uh, master and then adapting uh, for P3 at Light Iron. That was the, 
the and that was very difficult actually after looking at after looking at the BVM deep blacks for months and months. Yeah, getting adapting. You know, it's having a week to adapt to. Uh, you know, uh, a, a much different um, color. Uh, you know, sort of contrast levels is very hard. You know, and being unsatisfied. Uh, and thinking and looking at everybody going, does this feel right to you? Is it okay? You know? Um, yeah, I know. I mean, that, that's, yes, Eric, it's, you're, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's theatrical. <laughs> it's 48 knit. It's fine. It's yeah. it, those, those yeah. highlights are supposed to get that creamy and low. Yeah. And it's yeah. Crazy. It, yeah. And so to answer your question, I, I took that version, that final, and then just, um, we just sent that to Photochem and to see what we got back, but we sent a test to Photochem to just check that the general, you know, black and white levels were in the, in the right department. And then I, I think I did a slight ad adaptation. I can't remember, you know, actually I need to go back and look. Um, but it was pretty much just taking that and adapting it very quickly for the film out. And then it was just a question of making sure everything uh, was uh, printed properly. That makes sense. Um, and, that's about it, really. That's, I mean, that, 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 I think that's fascinating in and of itself. And and so, I'm. Were you taking? You were taking the P3D65 like thousand nit master and adapting that, or taking the red wide gamut log three G10 and and adapting that for the for the. Um, I took the log three G10 master. So the yeah. uh, the the master always has the RRT at the end um, right. to go to HDR. But I took my final master for, for Mank for, for the HDR version. I took it, just took that, that uh, log in log space, took that and, and then, you know, adapted it for 48 nits um, for the P3 uh, theatrical. I think I took that same scene file and just, you know, s made some tiffs and sent it to Photochem and see, to see what we would get back. Um, and then I might've made some adjustments, adjustments from there. Um, okay. but I certainly wouldn't have, I what I didn't do was to take just the tiffs of the P3 and then grade on top of them, right. uh, for the film out. I don't like grading on top of a, of a display space, basically. Hell yeah. That's, that's, that, that's for the birds, man. Great. And scenes. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I mean, that, that, that uh, another just like fun uh, ingredient in the process. You really put the DI back in DI for those two <laughs> prints. Put the uh, DI back in DI. Great t-shirt. <laughs> people would just be like, what does that mean? <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. That just confuse them further. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, cool. Well, I mean, I could ask about Mank all day, but I, I, I want to leave time to ask for the modeling that went into uh, another grade uh, for Mindhunter. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm aware of, uh, and I, forgive me, I can't remember the effect, but basically the, the sharpness fall off innate of period lenses that, uh, you guys were seeking to model with Mindhunter. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen you talk about that. So that what, like the, there's that piece and then any other like big pieces that went into like the same kind of like macro level, like, like model type things that, uh, went into Mindhunter. Well, Mindhunter, um, he asked, David asked for um, kind of a simulation of um, anamorphic, widescreen anamorphic lenses, sort of Gordon Willis style from films like, um, you know, the Parallax View or 
Clute, maybe, you know, um, oh, yeah. th those are really amazingly a, a distinct widescreen look to them. Um, and so there were, there was the element of having the anamorphic sort of squeezing on the edges. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a, the softening, you know, that we also did in Mank. there was softening, you know, defocus as you get closer to the edges, there's a vignette. And there's also what David wanted was chromatic aberration to, uh, you know, simulate, get us in the feel, you know, the, the look and feel of that era uh, with chromatic aberration. But David being David, he, you know, he famously doesn't like the color pink, which happens to be the closest to magenta. So the, the problem I had with chromatic aberration was that, you know, the 99 I'm going to say 100% of the filters out there that are readily available, just take the red channel or one of the channels and offset it a little bit. And so you get red on one side and um, cyan on the other side. So that was all fine and dandy, but David didn't want the red. Uh, so I, I did have to, you know, the, the first season, basically I, was, I had my grade for Mindhunter, you know, all the balancing and whatnot, the colors. And then I would render that and take it into another scene and just do, I had 25 layers of this lens treatment wow. uh, stuff in, in, in base light that was all, it was green, the defocus, the chromatic aberration, the gate weave, the, the vignette, but especially the chromatic aberration took like, I don't know, 14 of those layers. So wow. that was all fine and dandy. It was a two-step rendering process for anything. Um, and, HDR having just come out, it was like every, every night, you know, if I, I would render and just have, um, you know, frame ranges to render, but it had to be done on the command line because we had two render processes and it was insane. It, it was just like te text files of render commands that were just like go on forever. Um, um, but the point about the chromatic aberration was that you know, on season two, uh, they base light added the the ability to uh use glsl shaders they're, they're, they call them matchbox shaders um it was this was something that was started by autodesk uh for flame and luster um and these little shaders are are uh glsl shaders that are little they they, they, they operate on the gpu and so they're just little bits of code and me not being a coder but being a hacker uh, so just grabbing pieces of code, I, I you know, on, there's a site called shadertoy.com uh, that's brilliant because they, people share their pieces of code and the etiquette is that you simply, you know, um, uh, you know, credit who, where you got the piece of code from, but I was able to, um, I, I, I mostly use that for, uh, the, 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 the lens, uh, warping. Uh, I, I, I found the, the, you know, the math, the, the commands for doing the, the lens warping. Um, but I had, what I had to do in, in, in the, in the shader was to subtract basically to the red channel, the, the, what was being produced in the red operation from the cyan red operation to just get cyan or to be able to just dose back slightly a bit of uh, pink in there, but not too much so that it would look purple. Um, and yes, I was able to do that with a shader and it worked, it was much easier. So I had one timeline for, you know, one scene for season two, as opposed to two, uh, because it was just more compact and, uh, 
yeah, it was insane. <laughs> I mean, that's so much and that sounds insane, but that also to me is like the pure essence of what it is to like step in in a meaningful way in between an acquired image and a reproduced image. Like you're talking about really sculpting and authoring like the viewer's experience in a way so far beyond like a typical, like spin some knobs and, you know, like make it look a little better than it came in. Like you're fundamentally sculpting that experience with those, like all of those textural and spatial considerations. Like that's such mm -hmm. a lot of work, but that's super cool, man. That's a way that, yeah, thank you. Um, that's a way that I think DI has evolved. Um, uh, you know, visual effects has swung, or, you know, and, and DI uh, has swung upstream towards visual effects in ways that people don't realize, uh, you know, you, you, the people need to be, to learn, you know, and I mean, uh, savvy directors and, and cinematographers are uh, obviously learn, you know, you say, that, oh, we can do that. Yes, you can. Uh, you know, you, you can, you have a grid warp in, 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 uh, um, and right here in DI, okay, yeah. So I don't like that, you know, that that table leg. It's a little bit off, you know. Like, can you straighten that for me? Um, just there's so much you can do now. Um, so it all kind of adds up uh, sometimes. And you're a little bit like, hey, somebody else do this for me, please. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, it becomes a lot. But um, you know, and you have to you have to speak up when you know people are asking you to do too much or you can't keep up. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. always that edge where it's like, we can go further, but should we, or, or should we farm this out to another uh, mm -hmm. tool set or practitioner? Man, that is cool. I've uh, another question that kind of relates to what we've talked about with Mank and Mind Hunter, And I mean, the, the, you're a lot of the work you've done uh, with David uh, about HDR, like you're obviously doing everything in, in HDR now, like mm -hmm. how do you and the rest of the team and David think about HDR? What, what role does it play in, uh, like in your workflows? Like aside from the fact that it is a standard and you need to satisfy it, like what does it mean to you creatively? Um, to me, it was always super exciting. I mean, the first time I saw HDR, I thought the analogy to me was like, you know, when you looked at an or a, a slide on a, on a, on a light box, you know, with a, with a loop, you look down in the slide, um, and suddenly you would see, like light, you know, in a way that you just don't get from a print, you know? Right. Um, and it was always like, wow, this is a, you know, it always felt like a special thing. Well, now displays are approaching that, um, you know, those, those real, uh, you know, referring much more to the real world um, with these dynamic ranges. Um, I was always very excited. Um, but then again, you know, uh, these tools we have, you know, uh, Photoshop for sills or, you know, resolve or base light for, for motion or luster or whatnot. Um, they can easily create ugliness as they can create beauty. Yeah. And so these are very powerful tools that you got to be careful not to wield around too much. Uh, if you, if you know, it depends, it depends on your role in the thing, you know, um, I think I went way too far when I first got HDR and I, I was trying to do all this chiaroscuro stuff and <laughs> it was just fascinating and fun, you know, to have all 14 stops practically, um, yeah, there. you know, adjustable on your display. Um, David came out really quickly and said, you know, I don't give a shit about HDR. Um, uh, not if it's going to change 
my aesthetic you know uh i know uh, you know my my image is uh you know it, it needs to come into the service of what we're doing or not at all uh you know and so mine hunters uh hdr levels so to speak are quite uh gingerly you know they it's like 350 nits or 400 you know 600 was supposedly our, our speed limit or i think yeah. Uh, but he got into it and, and mostly his, his reasoning for that was um, that he, fe he feels like gamma or, or contrast uh, for colors creates um, color shifts. Um, uh, you know, like uh, you'll have one part of the cheek red and the other part will be, you know, the highlight will be green. The more you sort of stretch things out contrast wise. So he always likes to keep the, 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 the contrast tight, you yes. know, and so to him, HDR was going to, uh, undo that tightness you know um for Mankey was much more um anything goes in terms of you know thousand nits no problem um but um i don't know if i really answered all of that question you you answered it and several more and um <laughs> I, I think that's it's interesting to hear you talk about uh david's like relationship with the hdr thing because it it, it almost sounds to me like if nothing else, HDR affords you guys to work at whatever, like to go as far as David would want. Like when you mentioned if, uh, earlier in our conversation today, when you're like, David like has this, he, he wants to start by seeing every little gradation and tonal variation, like up the whole scale before we start knocking stuff down or crunching things mm -hmm. or whatever. That the first thing that occurs to me when I'm listening to you say that is like, that's a tall order with a hundred nits, you know, like that's really tough to do. So yeah. it seems like at least with HDR, you now have the ability to be like, Hey, you want to see every little like, uh, you know, like idiosyncrasy between like every little change in tone up and down the yeah. scale. Like now you can, and it's just a question of like how far you want to go with that versus how much you want to like homogenize, like you were saying, and sort of pleasingly blend adjacent tones together. So that seems like it would be, even if it's you're, you're uh, gingerly using it, as you said, that seems like it would be a huge gain for uh, David's aesthetic as well as, as your like excitement over the, the technology too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think it's wonderful, um, the, the range that you can get. That said, I personally have always been uh, scared of people using HDR in the way they use sound sometimes, which is way too bombastic. And literally trying to jolt people. Um, uh, I, I haven't really quite seen that, though, to, to be fair. Um, but, um, you know, for me, uh, films are, you know, I'm not a fan of films as video games or, or roller coaster rides. Um, that's my personal um, aesthetic. I, I'm, I'm very leery of strobing things, you know. But other than that, I'm, I like the fascination of looking at, like, you know, especially as the, now the, the, you know, the big screens are going to be HDR. Um, it'll create a new experience. It's fine. It's weird to look at old stuff though. Um, you know, these days, all these masterfully amazing films from the past that just are getting so far in you know, technically from what we're, how we're able to do things today. I'm not a perfectionist uh, like some uh, might be in terms of wanting to, um, improve the film along technical lines that 
that's not me personally. Although it's my job, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> if, if asked to do so, you know, uh, you know, I think you can conceivably be asked to do, uh, make an ugly grade or make a disturbing, you know, grade, something, you know, cut disturbing colors or, you know, things that don't go along the lines of, oh, aesthetic beauty, you know, um, it might not, you know, a show might call for something different, you know, and hell yeah. Those crayons. That's the job of the colorist, you know. To, those to, crayons should come out of the box too, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we haven't used the um, that puke mustard there crayon in a while. It's, yeah. I love that. Dust that one off. Oh, man, that's so cool. Uh, last thing on HDR, I, I have a hunch about your answer, but how do you do, how do you handle SDR trims? Do you do like a Dolby Vision or a, an automated thing, or is it, do you, do you do like a separate SDR trim pass? No, I've always done the, Dolby Vision trim pass. Nice. Um, I'm a believer in, you know, even if you're doing a, if you have the ability, you know, always do the HDR grade and then make your SDR trim from there. I don't know why, but I just feel like it's always, I personally always like to work in the, the widest gamut possible, even looking at it um, uh, and then reduce from there. Yeah. You know, it only makes sense. Um, Eric Messerschmidt, by the way, loves loved HDR from the start, and now they're for for the current project, which is called the Killer. They have these Sony uh, the this mini BVMs, which are you know the ones that are about this big that have the proper deep blacks. I mean, he, what he sees on set is basically exactly what I see here. Uh, as soon as I get the rushes, um, the 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 R3Ds, and Eric loves that because um, he says it allows him to uh, shoot a cleaner negative. Because he's not protecting so much for the highlights, he can see pretty much what he has. Um, so intuitively, before when he was monitoring an SDR, even though the histogram might have told him, you do have detail in the highlights, like in the window back there or whatnot, he would have intuitively uh, sort of pushed it, you Hold know, then maybe stop, stop down a third or, or a half a stop just to make sure. Um, but now he knows more. Um, he, he, he says, this is all what he says, that he can see more. Um, on set so he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's able to leave it a bit more open um knowing what he can do later in post with that very cool yeah i mean it, it it's like yeah it's so interesting he's literally seeing more of the image that's being captured when, yeah. when you're monitoring that way that's Crazy. awesome yeah and uh, and yeah it's it's amazing how cinematography has changed i mean they don't carry cinematographers i don't think carry light meters anymore no um and not if they're monitoring um yeah one of the things that I think is so awesome about uh, the fact that the, 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 the way that you are uh, sort of oriented with the rest of the production team and the fact that, as you said, you're a member of whatever production you guys are working on at the time means you can have that like meaningful exchange. But I, I've, I've had so many interesting conversations with cinematographers and colorists and filmmakers about like, yeah, like what you're viewing under changes your decisions. And like the, the example you just gave about Eric protecting highlights is a great example, but it works on the bottom too. Like how far you fill in your shadows is intimately related to the ratio of the viewing lot that you're looking through. So when mm -hmm. there's not, when those things aren't in sync, the way you guys are in, are in sync, like it obviously fundamentally changes uh, what the, the perceptions and the decisions that happen on set, which then of course mm -hmm. affects what you can do later. Mm -hmm. um, that's so cool. Yeah. Well, like me, Eric is lucky. Um, also Eric Messerschmidt, um, yeah. he's lucky to be able to test as much as he does. Uh, for every Fincher shoot, 
um, to try out ideas. Um, I don't think he gets that on every movie. Um, uh, but the day for night thing was something that he, where he did some tests, uh, you know, with how much bounce and fill he wanted to, to eliminate shadow so that, so that the, the day for night itself would, would, um, you could see the, the, the fall off on the side of the face wouldn't go into black. It would just, it would, it would, it would, you'd still have the differentiation between that and the background. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm literally like, I'm just running those images in my head right now. I'm, I'm going to go watch that film after we get off. Like that, that was such a cool achievement for you guys. Oh, and I know the other thing I wanted to ask you back very quickly to that day for night thing, you mentioned that Swan curve that uh, was kind of doing the, the, the baseline uh, mm-hmm. work for you for, for printing down. Mm-hmm. Was there like a, any kind of like uniform, like exposure pull or anything upstream of that? Or was the whole thing like your tube stops over day and you're getting down to your base exposure for this look. That was the, just that curve that you mentioned already. It was just the curve um, and the base light, base grade tool. Uh, you know, whatever worked basically. Yeah. Um, but no, there was no, there was no uh, standard. We're going to shoot this this way and we're going to, we're going to, um, you know, you're automatically going to take the R3Ds and uh, render them two stops under. No, right. there was, it was not that because basically, uh, you know, uh, with, with, uh, and even if we had, you know, I get, we, we get EXRs, we make EXRs from the R3Ds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in 99% of the cases, if you take an EXR, uh, an R3D and you're, you, it, let's say you're grading an R3D and you, uh, you're directly on an R3D and you take the exposure down two stops in the R, the SDK of the R3D. So in the red decode parameters, mm-hmm. Um, if you take it down two stops there, or you, so you do that and then you, and then you do the alternative, which is to take the R3D, make a 16 bit EXR from it, which is what we do for everything. And then take the, take it down two stops in, in, in your DI tool, you know, either resolve or base light, you get exactly the same result. At least in base light you do, you can take it down. You take the base grade down minus two and you, it's exactly minus two stops from uh, uh, the same exact result. So there's no real need. I keep saying there's no real need to rebake these, you guys. Um, but they, 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 you, you basically have it all in, with a linear EXR at your fingertips. You, know? you have exactly the same photon count as, as what's in the R3D. Dude, we've covered so much in the last couple of minutes. Where is this craft of uh, color grading going? Anything that you're like, excited about or fearful of in terms of uh, the, the course that we're on. My humble prediction that I see coming true even right now is that our community is becoming maybe a little less competitive as you uh, alluded to a moment ago. I think there's historically a, a bit of kind of like clandestineness and guardedness that is. Yeah. And like, honestly, this conversation to me is a great example. Like you are at the very top of this field, practicing at a very, very high level. And we just talked for an hour and you were very, very open and generous about the way you do that. 
So I, I think that that's a great example of a shift that I do see happening culturally for us right now, that we're becoming more like cinematographers who've been that way forever. They're like, you want to know mm -hmm. where I put what light? Go pick mm -hmm. up this month's issue of American Cinematographer. It's in there. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it's cool to see us moving in that direction. Uh, yeah, I think it's um, inevitable. I, I, I used to be more protective of how I did what, and at the end of the day, it's also tiresome to do that. Um, yeah. There's all, all kinds of things to benefit from, I share this with you and you share that with me. And because, guess what? I didn't know everything from the start and I learned from other colorists and, and uh, you know, um, you know, master classes and whatnot. Um, but I think there's also a huge dialogue that takes place nowadays, just with the cinematographer. The cinematographers need to know a lot of our techniques um, and want to know, um, and they have a right to know. And so you, you, you just get more used to talking about what the hell, how the hell you did that because, um, everybody literally has a computer in their hands, you know, and is able to tweak the image and, and whatnot as well. I mean, the art of cinematography now is also extremely computer-based as well in terms of previs, um, um, and, um, in terms of finding, you know, the, the, the field of view angles and the, and the, the framings and they, they need to know how an image gets stabilized or they, you know, it's so much more of, um, of, uh, we're all kind of overlapping, you know, in a way, yeah. the visual effects, the, the DI, the, the, the cinematographer, it's blending a bit, you know, um, well, the old, the old ways would be that everybody has a distinct role. You know, it's like what the classic analogy is if you go into a record store and you say, where, where, where does country and Western stop, you know, stop and uh, um, folk begin or, uh, uh, you know, uh, R&B or blues begin, you know, these, some of these things totally overlap, you know, yes. um, so it's hard to create categories, you know? Yeah. Bring on the blend, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into it. Well, man, I, as I uh, started our conversation with, I feel like we're, we're one hour into a, 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 a dialogue I wish we could have for uh, the next several, but I'm going to give you back your day and thank you so much for uh, sharing uh, all of your experience and insight. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited to uh, get, get, get to have heard all of uh, these processes that you uh, are, are using on these films and you've got me more excited about making images look interesting. So thanks a bunch, man. Oh man, it's a pleasure. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it was, it was really great uh, talking to you. Good deal. Well, thanks a bunch, Eric. I'm sure we'll uh, cross paths again very soon. Likewise. All right, man. See you. See you. Thank, thank you.